Bethel World Outreach Church. Reaching a city to touch the world. Thank you, Will. Thank you, worship team. Wow, well, good morning. My name is Kevin. Um, I'm a member here, been a member for 13 years. Occasionally they ask me to speak because nobody else is available. Um, Actually, most of the time they ask me, I say no 99% of the time, but Pastor James and Pastor Bruce called and uh, asked, and it's such a privilege to speak in my own home church. Um, Pastor Will did that song just for me, because my sermon today is on the gathered church. Could you say the gathered church? For all of church history, there have been two rhythms. The church gathers and the church scatters. The church gathers, the church scatters. So today I want to talk about the historical significance, the personal significance, the actual reason that we need one another to survive. I don't know about you, but in my faith walk of 45 years with Jesus, I can't tell you how many times my brothers and sisters in Christ got in my face, and it is the reason that I have survived. We need one another. But we're going to look at the depth of the reason that all of you woke up this morning and there was an impulse inside of you to go to church. And you know, the reason you came to church, I know you think maybe is because of this or that, but throughout all of church history, there's only one reason the church gathers, and that's because Jesus is Lord. There's no other reason that we would ever come and gather on a Sunday morning because there's football in church. There's lake. I live by a lake. I mean, I would rather be in my boat, but Jesus is Lord. For 45 years, I have drugged myself to church regardless, and it's not because I'm a good Christian. It's because Jesus is Lord. And he wants a people that is gathered. So let's stand and let's read scripture. Our story today is going to be a historical uh, reflection of a group of people that confessed Jesus as Lord about 50 years after Jesus had died, this letter was written to them because something bad had happened between their confession and their continuing to be confessors over many years. And we're going to see how someone rescued them and brought them back into their faith. Would you please read with me, if you have your Bible open to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. We're going to start with verse 23. You can read up on the screen. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're going to drop to verse 32. But recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we just ask over these next few minutes that you powerfully would come into this room with your Spirit's presence, and you would teach us about the reason that we gather. In Jesus' name, amen. These uh, people that this book was written to, it's called the book of Hebrews. So many scholars believe it was written because of the way it was written to a minimal, a group of people that understand everything, understood all of the things in Jewish culture that were pointing to the coming Jesus. Now I want to ask you a question. How many of you were not raised in church, and so you didn't hear about Jesus at all, and when you came to faith, you were pretty ignorant. Raise your hand if that was you. Raise your hands way up if that was you. Okay, so, and the rest of you, you grew up in a culture that was maybe a lot like the Hebrews. So in the Hebrews, everything in their culture was pointing to this coming Messiah, they had all kinds of rituals and all kinds of things that many of you, as, at, from the very earliest of age, you grew up with this entire culture that was pointing to Jesus Christ. I grew up in a pagan culture. Nothing in my life was pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, a lot of people in my group talked about Jesus Christ a lot. But it was not what you talked about, about Jesus Christ. It was different. When they talked about Jesus, it was to curse. Are you tracking with me? And so when I came to faith, it was really, really different. Now, what had happened to this group of people is these Hebrews had decided to confess with their mouth that Jesus was Lord. Now, let me tell you something. Regardless if you were grown, if you grew up religious or not religious, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that is the most cataclysmic twin events that can ever happen in the soul of an individual and in the society that surrounds them. In fact, Jesus is Lord is the most ancient 
symbol of all Christian confessions. Would you say that with me? Say, Jesus is Lord. That was pretty tepid for the most cataclysmic words that will ever be spoken from human lips. Let's say it with a heart that is believing and a mouth that is confessing. Let's say Jesus is Lord. Lord. For 2,000 years, that has been our confession. That's our confession of hope. And this group of Hebrews confessed Jesus is Lord on a Sunday in an altar call, and, but then they had to go home. How many of you remember the day you went home after you said Jesus is Lord? Let me tell you what happens when you say Jesus is Lord. First of all, when you say Jesus is Lord, immediately your soul goes to work to root that thing out of the inside of you because of the darkness that's inside of you. Jesus is Lord means this to you. This is what happened to me. Jesus is Lord. I am not Lord. Oh, my goodness. Jesus is Lord, and I am not Lord. Jesus is Lord, and I have to forgive because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, and my sexuality is not my Lord, and I my personal immoral life because I was filthy. That is not Lord. God defines that because Jesus is Lord. I am not Lord of my own body. He is the Lord of my own body. My money is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. My emotions are not Lord. Jesus. And listen, I haven't even begun to fight the world. When you say Jesus is Lord, you have exploded something in your soul that is cataclysmic and that belief that is a gift from God, the most precious gift that you will ever get in your life is the ability to believe that Jesus is Lord. And every dark section of my life began to attack that single idea. And when I kicked me off that day of the throne of my life and Jesus stepped on, guess what I tried to do? I tried every day to kick him back off and get back on the throne of my own life. But Jesus is Lord. And that became my confession of hope. Of hope. If you've got a bad marriage, Jesus is Lord. That should give you hope. When tragedy strikes and you have a child die or a friend's child, I have had every horrible thing happen. And those times my pastors would grab me when I was in tragedy. Because let me tell you, when tragedy happens, what happens in your soul is you try to de-root that confession of hope and you try to get it out and you get discouraged and you say, where are you, Jesus? Because tragedy, but Jesus is Lord. That is my confession of hope. When I can't figure out why the pain is so bad and why my life is a wreck, just say, Jesus is Lord. Every time something comes after that confession, because your soul 
comes after that confession. Jesus said in the parable of the sower that Satan comes after that confession. And let me tell you, everything in life comes against that single confession of hope. These believers were wavering in their confession of hope. And this writer says this. He said, remember the first day. Remember the first day you said Jesus is Lord. Remember how jazzed you were about Jesus. Oh, yeah. He, he's reminded, we read it. He said, remember, remember the earlier days when you gladly were mocked publicly and you had joy in your soul because they were after your confession of hope. Remember when they put your friends in jail and you said, oh, no, 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 I'm going to associate with them. I'm not going to disassociate with them because Jesus is Lord. And you went to there because Jesus was Lord. They said they took your property because you proclaimed that Jesus was Lord and you were okay with them taking your property. But then he says, what happened to you? What happened to you? And here's where we come in. The one another. The gathered church. He said, I want you to go to the place where confessors hang out. Let us... Let us, everybody say, let us. Let us hold fast. Not you by yourself. I have a whole group of us that has fought for me to maintain my confession of hope for 45 years. When I was disillusioned, guess what? My pastor, my best friend, grabbed me by the shirt collar verbally. And he said, let me tell you what's happening. Satan is coming to sift you. He's coming after your confession of hope. Kevin, you may be confused. I don't even know the answer to why this is befalling you. But listen, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. And you do not waver in your confession of faith. Kevin, don't cast away that confidence. Listen, when we read that verse and it's, you know, don't cast away your confidence because and you're shooting, you're, you're playing basketball or football. Well, that's okay, but that's not what this is really about. It's your confession of faith. It's your confession of hope. He said, don't throw it away, which means you can throw it away. He says, go to where confessors hang out, which is the assembly. Let us. You know why? Jesus grabbed you by the soul and gave you the impulse to come to church. Because we're confessors. I mean, how many of you think that's pretty amazing? Now, I know church and the gathering is being trashed everywhere. We come up with all kinds of unique things that are really brilliant. But I want to tell you something. You're no better of a Christian than me. And I have to grab myself 
every week and go to the one place that when the music starts, my confession of hope, I look around and I see hundreds of people confessing that Jesus is Lord. I see hundreds of people that are confessors like me that are going through every single same exact problem that I do. But they're coming together on that Sunday morning to confess their great Lord is still king in the middle of all the problems, even if the preacher dude doesn't figure it out for them. Whether or not his three points even apply. Listen, they didn't have Bibles for the vast majority of church. Not until the 1700s did we even have Scripture. Now the ubiquity of it, we forget. They didn't have even a Scripture. They drugged themselves to the assembly. Why? To work on their confession of hope. That Jesus is Lord. Because when those Jews said Jesus is Lord, they went home and their Jewish families said he is not Lord. Jesus is not Lord. And they said, Jesus is Lord. They said, he's not Lord. In fact, get out. You're no longer a member of our family. You ostracized from society. You might have lost your job. You ended up in prison. We take your property. But they said, Jesus is Lord. When you say Jesus is Lord, everything inside of you, everything outside of you, all the demons in hell come after your confession of hope. The reason he wakes you up and drags you to church is because we are the confessors. Throughout all of church history, the first 300 years, Christians became known as confessors or the lapse. There was two kinds of Christians before Constantine. The confessors were frightening to Rome. Frightening. Still to this day, the scariest thing in the enemies of the church is the gathered church, not the scattered church. They could give a rip in China when they chase our pastors. They look at them and say, do not gather publicly or we will throw you in prison. Why? Because when we are with one another, we are clarifying our confession of hope. And because we are together, we are not afraid whatever lies outside of this door. Listen, prosperity is probably the biggest demon we fight in America. But I want you to know something. Jesus is the Lord will shatter that. You see, in the first few hundred years, the confessors, the people that knew Jesus was the Lord, so Rome mounted up, and when Septimus Severus was, was the African emperor of Rome, he decided he was going to quash Christianity from the Roman Empire. And it was only 120 years after the book of Hebrews was written. See, we may think we're unique Christians, and we said Jesus is Lord, and there's just too much good going on, and, and that's why. No, no, no. This has been our history. We say Jesus is Lord, all hell breaks loose, and then a decade later, Jesus comes in to check in with you and check in with me and says, how is your confession of hope? 
First altar call is right now. It's right now. In Scripture, the Bible says this. There is one confession, three words, that will be stated by every human that has ever lived. Only one confession. This is that confession. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You will not escape that confession if you are sucking air and you're human. You will confess it with the hordes of hell in fear and rejection one day. You will confess, even the demons confess that he's Lord. So you'll confess it that way or in this life, right now, because of belief, because of faith, you can confess in belief, believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. There has never been such a thing as a silent church. You cannot be a confessor without confessing. And when he said, let us hold fast to our confession of hope, the second idea is that a confession is not a private, personal list of what you believe about Jesus. That's your opinion. A confession is a collective agreement. It's always been that. If you study this word, it means a collective agreement. Throughout ancient church history, the church, the real church, the gathered church, the specific church, the local church, there weren't any Bibles, so they wrote down baptism confessions. Jesus is Lord, and then they explained it. Now, when the Hebrews came to Christ, they got dunked real quick because their whole culture was pointing to Christ. But the church had a crisis when all the Kevin Yorks that were sinful and Gentiles and jacked up came to Jesus. They were clueless. So you know what they had to do? They had to start catechuming classes for us idiots. They knew Jesus was Lord. Oh, we do it as passionate as the Hebrews. But man, boom, everything made sense in their society. But to the Gentiles, nothing made sense. Preachers in the first century church had to start preaching longer because of all the screwed up Gentiles. So Septimus Severus, he arrested three catechumens, three or five of them. They were all in the baptism class in a local church in Carthage in northern Africa. That was the hotbed of Christianity. You Africans, you've always screwed up people that want to destroy the church because you just always seem to be alive down there in Africa. So he arrested these five catechumens, two ladies. One of them was Perpetua and her handmaiden, Felicitas. Perpetua, she was a wife of a nobleman, wealthy. She was in her 20s. Brand new, confessed Jesus is Lord. Felicitas, her handmaiden, she said, Jesus is Lord. They were jacked up. They didn't know anything. And three others. So he arrested them. And he said, confess, listen to me, please listen to me. Confess Jesus is not Lord. 
If you're a believer and you have confessed that with your mouth, that's a frightening thought. Let me, let me guess something. If it ever got to the place in the U.S. that you could lose your life from confessing that, you probably hear that no American Christians would ever do that. They'd all just run away. That is not true. Not because you're great, but because if there is a gift of faith in you, and you believe in your heart, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you were confronted like many of our every nation pastors and church members, confess he's not Lord. They would say, do whatever you want to do. But I will never confess that Jesus is not Lord. So, Petapatua and Felicitas and the three other newbie Christians that hadn't even got out of the baptism class, they weren't even members yet, said that. And Severus said, kill him. Much is written about this group in history. Augustine, the great bishop of Hippo, used it five times in his sermon. We know a lot. And they were murdered in the great Colosseum in Carthage. They were called confessors. Confessors were scary people. Scary. Listen, teenagers, if you say Jesus is Lord, I want to ask you something. Can you walk on your high school campus and say, Jesus is Lord? College students, can you walk on your college campus? I don't care how liberal it is and say, Jesus is Lord and live it. Confessors, this is the great history. There was another group called the Lapsed. Many of them were even pastors, and this is what happened in the persecution. When they were threatened, they said, Jesus is not Lord, and here's our scrolls. And they fled the church, and they ran and hid. Let me tell you something. When Constantine came to power in Rome, and he moved Rome from He he moved the Roman Empire headquarters from Rome to Byzantinium and renamed it Constantinople. This today, Istanbul. When Constantine did that and made Christianity legal, guess what happened? The lapsed flooded into the church and created a crisis. Because you had the commingling of the laps and the confessors that their confession of faith was more valuable than their very life. Some churches said, no, never, not here, and not now. Some churches said, we may have an app for that. Push pause. We'll get to you in a little while, and others said, oh, come. You see, the lapsed version of Christianity where you get as many people as possible, as many people as possible. In fact, I was 
graduating from my master's degree, and I don't suggest that it's bad for your health, um, but I was recently at our graduation, and um, Dr. Tennant charged us graduation. He said, he said, why do we ever acknowledge minimalism Christianity as viable? He said, why would you ever want as many as people as possible to acknowledge as little as possible? For a gospel that is theologically wrong and think that's ever going to do anything. It is a failed project. It's been a failed project for centuries. Jesus is the Lord is the only version of Christianity. And in that version, there is no water. Say confessing assembly. Say confessing assembly. Put that slide up. Say confessing assembly. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a confessor. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is the Lord. Turn to your neighbor and say, aren't you glad that you can confess that Jesus is Lord? That is your most treasured possession. Most treasured. The second thing that he says in this, he's trying to rescue them. This is a rescue operation today. That's why I come. I need my confession rescued regularly. I've also learned that if anything begins to scratch at my confession of faith, I get angry. Do you get angry? You want to know how to not cast away your confidence? Get angry when that confession is attacked. Just get angry. Someone was attacking the church in class. Yeah, you can, you can have skeptics in seminaries. And I had to calm down our team, and I stopped the class with all their PhDs from Princeton and all that. Stopped the class. And I said, we need to take a break, and I need to talk to the two of you. And we took a break. Why? Because what they were doing was scratching at the foundation of the confession of our hope. And I didn't care if I was in seminary. Because I learned a long time ago when my faith was shaking and my confession was wavering that I could rise up and not cast away my confidence. And so can you. The second reason we come together, and I'll finish Bruce, says, oh, minus five. Oh, okay. You know what? C'est la vie. The rapture is going to happen now. Would you please stand? I'll finish, just, I'll finish with you standing. The last thing is this. Last two thoughts, he says, let us consider how to stir one another on to love and good works. Your bishop, Rice Brooks, I've, I've known him since I was 26. 
He's the most pesky individual I have ever known. Today, he still exhausts me. And there's one reason. I'll never forget our first encounter. I was yelling at him on the phone in my 30s. And he said, Kevin, someday you might be a good pastor. He said, when are you going to stir up your congregation to change the world? We have to stir one another up. And that word means to create pain and force you to go out and do something about your faith. Thank all of you students for going through that. This is because you're a considered assembly. The ancients sat in rooms just like Bethel, elders and leaders. They sat in rooms and they considered how to take the mob and spur them on to love and to good works. And the last thing he says, don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. Have you habitualized the gathering? He's not saying if you've got a communicable disease and you could kill people from coming to come. Okay? He's saying it's your, your habit. I want to say this. We live in a country that trashes the church. And it's not what non-Christians say about us that shock me. It's what Christians say about us that shock me. I hear things like this all the time. You don't go to church. You are the church. That's actually not true. You are not the church. You're a brick. You're a stone. You're a toe, but you're not the body. And you're not the building. Oh, you may be a living stone, but until you put your brick in an organized building called the local church, there's no definition around you. Nobody cares about your private brick Christianity. You're just a pile of bricks if you're disconnected. Now, this is the other thing I hear, but no church is good enough because I'm a special brick. I've figured out to be a great brick. And there's not, out of the thousands of churches, there's not one good enough for me to insert my little brick in. Yeah. You see, I'm an expert. I've gone to post-grad consulting school. I have a master's degree. None of that matters. I just know my Bible. Know your Bible. You'll be an expert. Reject all of those ideas. You go to church. You are not the church. With all my titles, I am not the church. Bishop Rice is not the church. James Lowe, he is not the church. And I know Bruce is a German, but Bruce is not the church. We are the church. We are the church gathered. We are the church organized. We are the church of confessors. We come together in God's rhythm to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Lord. 
that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Lord. That is your greatest treasure. And when you walk out of here today, make sure that your confession of hope is solid and you will rock the world. Pastor Bruce. If you've watched this message and you want to make Jesus Lord of your life, I've got good news. You can do it right now. I want you to pray with me. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my life for the rest of my life. I acknowledge I am a sinner. I need you, my Savior. I believe you died for me. I believe you were raised from the dead on the third day. And I confess that you are now Lord of my life. If you've just prayed that prayer, I have good news for you. You have eternal life. The next step for you is to get in a Bible-believing church. We volunteer to be that church. But if not us, we pray God's blessings on you as you search for God's best for you. Thank you. Bethel World Outreach Church. Reaching a city to touch the world.